0: Welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by the women in the field. I'm Emily Long, and I'm here with my fellow co-hosts, Chelsea Slotin and Kirsten Lopez. We are very excited to be joined by archaeologist and author, Sins of the Shovel, Looting, Murder, and the Evolution of American Archaeology, Rachel Morgan. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. We are thrilled to have you here. We're thrilled to talk about your book. Um, but before we dive into all of that, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Like, where did you go to school? What are your interests in archaeology? That kind of thing.
1: Sure. Um, so I started out at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, where I majored in anthropology and history. Uh, Then I moved on to the University of York in the UK, where I got a master's in medieval archaeology. And then I came back to the States, uh, started working in the field, um, and I uh, have since then uh, bounced around the southeast quite a bit uh, and am now on sort of a lab role for the first time. And um, I just really love archaeology. I love the history of archaeology. I love... uh, Finding weird material culture things to obsess over, and uh, so uh, it's just a very uh, wonderful field that I'm grateful to be part of.
0: That is so cool. Um, and I are there different areas that you're hoping to explore um, more as you're doing more writing and more work as you're uh, you're doing more and more research? Because I think I saw you you've done a lot of Viking research.
1: Um, yeah, I guess the Vikings are sort of my first love in archaeology. I'm always interested in them. Uh, Working in the U.S., I don't get to uh, work hands-on with them as much as I'd like to, um, or at all, actually. Um, But um, I still love researching and writing about them. Um, Yeah, I am just uh, easily interested in pretty much anything in the... um, post-contact area of archaeology, so uh, it's very uh, easy for me to uh, get interested in anything new. Um, I love geophysics. Uh, yeah, um, Yeah, my interests are all over the place, really. Nothing wrong with that. I always had the hardest time. Like,
0: I would love to get a PhD someday, but I have no idea what it would be specifically in because it's just like, there are too many interesting things to research and look into and write about.
1: Absolutely. You can't major in the archaeology of everything yet. Exactly. I mean, you could try. And I
0: know um, Kelsey (laughs) shares your love of Vikings and um, Norse archaeology too.
2: Yes, I I did do a PhD um, on archaeology, um, the impact of sex and gender on lived experiences, um, and social expectations during the Danish Viking uh, Age. And before we get started down that rabbit hole, because that is not what we're here to talk about today.
0: <laughs> I know, but Vikings are so cool. Uh, Vikings
2: are so cool. But I will derail the conversation, so that's all <laughs> I'm going to say on that.
0: <laughs> but Yeah. I think okay yes I guess I guess we won't talk about vikings but yeah um Rachel maybe another episode exactly we'll have to bring you back Rachel just to talk about vikings for fun (laughs) but yes so your wonderful book um we are we're very lucky to be able to read it um I was lucky enough that my my son slept you know through his naps and (laughs) through the night so that I could get a lot of reading done um what made you specifically want to look at American archaeology and the evolution of American archaeology uh, in the first place? Like, what made you go, ooh, I got to write about this?
1: Um, I guess um, it's a bit selfish, but I uh, have just, my career has led me to work uh, with primarily Section 106, as uh, many American archaeologists end up doing. Um, And I have just, uh, over time, developed a strange fascination with um, historic preservation law. Um, And I just sort of started exploring the history of the laws that regulate the field today and was just really fascinated by the people who worked to make the law a reality and those who were not so helpful. And Mm -hmm. I just got really drawn into their stories. And um, so... Yeah, it was about the law to me and that just sort of made it a story about American archaeology um, specifically. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, yeah, and I think a lot of what our listeners may not know about American archaeology is how so much of our legislation is reactionary, whereas I think a lot of other countries have a more, maybe more ingrained sense of like preservation. I don't know, I just, I see the different, maybe i don't know in the uk it seemed like people who do the um like metal detectoring all that stuff ends up still going back to like the national trust i don't know maybe i'm wrong about that
2: <laughs> there is a law in the uk yeah that, that says that if you find anything in metal detecting you have to um report it to the appropriate authorities um i know some of the nordic countries have similar laws some that are even even more strict than the UK, um, and basically the museums, the National Trusts, National Heritage have an option to to buy the piece that was found, but it has to be bought at what is kind of like fair market value. So there's a lot of stuff that it just doesn't have the the budget to mm-hmm. buy. Um, but, but a lot of that is, is reactionary. There was centuries of people finding stuff and just, like, keeping it in their own private collections and, like, let's not even get started on what the British Museum does
0: with its collections. That
2: is another tangent <laughs> that we should go off on. I'm, I'm going to be the we're tangent lady today. <laughs> Never so mind.
0: All the things are bad.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, um, Rachel, like I said, man, we're good at going down rabbit holes. Oh, uh, so you're... <laughs> yeah. you're your title um, with uh, Looting, Murder, the Evolution of American Archaeology, there's so much there. Could you give our listeners um, a synopsis, like the summary of your book?
1: Sure. So um, the book starts out uh, following uh, two cowboys, uh, one named Richard Wetherell, who is uh, sort of one of the primary focuses of the book. And um in the beginning, he's sort of uh, your average rancher in Colorado, uh, doing whatever it takes to get by, a lot of odd jobs. Um, just, It's a really rough environment. Their family's just trying to get by. Um, he stumbles into the cliff dwellings of Mesa Verde and um, becomes a um, really enchanted by both uh, the archaeology as a source of Um, interest, but it also becomes a source of profit. So um, that's sort of two lines that are followed throughout this book. He is interested in what these things um, represent about the past and the people of the past, but the uh, artifacts also become commodities to him. Um, At the same time as uh, his story transpires um, across the Four Corners area, um, the field of American archaeology is starting to mature and move away from uh, this idea of um, archaeology as um, just sort of um, a collection-oriented, commodified um, uh, uh Discipline mm-hmm. um, into something more professional and data-driven. It's a very slow, uh, uh, messy evolution, um, but uh, the book follows uh, these two lines of uh, a person as they make their journey through an unregulated archaeology and a field as it's trying to mature into something more disciplined. Very nice.
0: And I do love uh, um, the fact you use the Wetherills and more specifically Richard as a way to, as like a contextual theme throughout the entire book to place archaeology into. And you keep kind of, you draw back to them with each evolutionary stage of archaeology where it's like, okay, we started with this looting and now we've got ethnology and now we've got the Bureau of Ethnology. Now we've got this expedition. Now we've got the Smithsonian, and, and I'll keep tying it back to um, the Weatheralls. And through all of that, with with Richard and then the evolution, was there anything that really surprised you during your research? Oh,
1: uh, quiet. I mean, there's a, a lot bit. there. <laughs> <laughs> um- Yeah, there's a a lot of scandal and shenanigans um, in the history of archaeology. I guess I was surprised by the amount of gray area um, that I found while researching it. Um, It's really difficult in some of these early um, archaeology endeavors. I I won't go so far as to call them excavations um, to differentiate between what was professional archaeology and what was looting, you mm-hmm. had a lot of professionals who were really dependent on these people who were more commercially oriented. Um, they, they relied on them as tour guides, as field workers, um, as sort of guardians of these places. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you have a situation where museums and universities were often in cahoots with the looters. Um, And I I guess I uh, had more of a present-day perspective in the beginning, and I I just expected a a finer line to be drawn between the two. But in the early days, uh, 19th century, um, things were really blurred. That surprised me a lot,
0: too, when going through it. Because, I mean, you hear the tales and whatnot when learning about archaeology professionally. And then there was so much where I was just like, oh, wow, we knew it was bad. I didn't realize it was quite that bad. And it's not surprising that we don't... It's not surprising we don't have a, a much better relationship in many respects with indigenous peoples um, in in terms of collections, repatriation and whatnot, given the history. Um, but before I, I know I have so many questions, I don't want to <laughs> bogart the conversation. Um, Chelsea and Kirsten, please jump in before I just go down another rabbit hole of questions.
2: <laughs> it's, it's great, Emily, particularly because um, the American Southwest is definitely the place that you love, right? Like, I mean, you've talked <laughs> about Trafficking in Mesa Verde, and so it, it absolutely makes sense that you're the one who's like, gung-ho. Um, so I, I will say one of the things that I was really struck by, and I don't know whether this was an intentional or not, but by kind of constantly bringing it back to the people um, I think it did a really good job of like hu- humanizing, um, you know the decisions, what was going on, and like it's really easy to to look at the past as as Emily was saying with like the lens of the present, um, and expect things to be as clear cut as they are, or to look at the past and be like, oh, well, like that would never happen today because X X Y and Z, um, and I, I did really like that you kind of brought it back to people it makes it a lot more human relatable um definitely you know, more engaging it. engaging yeah absolutely well, no, particularly obviously. because like sometimes when you start talking about like section 106 and legal things you are be like <laughs> oh well that's really dry i'm gonna shut my brain off now
3: <laughs> yeah it puts so much of its development in context um the, hum- the humanization of everything as far as like well, shitty, yes, but also not out of place and not unexpected. You know, just talking about how the universities were and in many ways still are, a side note. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, to the shenanigans, to the things going on. So, I mean, this was st- also the era where, like, And they, they, you do a really good job at nodding to other developments in society and science at the time. So it's kind of like this is also the age where like grave robbing was a way of going about doing your dissections to learn about how the body works. Like, just the the moral lines that we have today didn't really exist then. They were very different. Mm-hmm. And reminding the reader of that regularly is a really awesome thing that I I noted that you do throughout the book. Um it's is-
2: it oh, on what we've we've talked about a couple of times on this show when we've talked about or on this um, podcast when we've talked about like looting right like we there was an episode where we had dr johnny yates on this was like several years ago now um we talked about how a lot of the people who are like currently looting or grave robbing sites are people who are, are literally starving right mm-hmm. um and it, it's it can be very commercial it's the way to feed your family um so there's i don't know there's an interesting
0: Oh yeah. With the weather rolls, right with that. There. It's like, they're just trying to make a living.
2: But... <laughs> yeah. And if your basic needs aren't met, you know, is it, is it the weather rolls who are at fault? Is it the institutions who are paying them who are at fault? You know, a lot of people who are, who are looting today are doing so at the behest of someone who's going to go and make a hell of a lot more money on the black market. Yeah. Um, so not, not taking the risk. Um, so where does our where does our censure lay? Yeah. Did you find Rachel the Weatheralls
0: to be more sympathetic than you anticipated? Um
1: I don't know. Um <laughs> I found them fascinating. Oh, wow. Um I think that I I think I went back and forth on how sympathetic I found them. Mm-hmm. Um there were definitely times where you could see um the hardship um of, uh, you know, trying to establish yourself in the West and how um, much of a drain that was financially. And I can just imagine how exhausted and just run down they must have felt at times. Um, And, you know, they definitely had pluck and that's admirable. At the same time, there were, um, you know, other times where Indigenous people were Mm -hmm. clearly communicating to them, what you're doing is not acceptable uh, to my beliefs and their attitudes towards that were um, pretty much, I don't care. Uh, I'm in charge here and I'm going to do what I want. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is unacceptable. Um, and so, yeah, there are parts of their lives that I definitely, um, you know, have some uh, sympathy for. Um, and then you come to the way that they engage with indigenous peoples and it, that puts a very uh, different lens on it and it's Mm -hmm. harder to be sympathetic to their plight in that light Mm -hmm.
0: and different family members too it's like this one seemed okay this one oof oof they're bad
3: (laughs) Mamie was a character man like (laughs) Richard Wendell's wife yeah if if I'm pronouncing that correctly that's how I was reading it in my head um (laughs) was just every everything that she said and i'm so glad that you included her like weird off the cuff like random stories that made no sense whatsoever (laughs) as far as like wow what an imagination and like she was just like almost a a, i don't know if i'd really call her a comedic relief per se but almost a caricature (laughs) yeah a weird quirky person involved in the corner that's like calling out these random stories and you're like okay you are you're like there's there's something else going on um, you know with her that I'm kind of fascinated by but just like how she plays into everything and then ends up you know it just the discussion also some of the the descriptions of the characters of the two that you see through like little Richard's eyes is very different.
0: Mm-hmm. Their son, um, their yeah. little boy. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. They're which um, how I was curious. Cause like, how did you find the interview with him or interviews? I don't know. Like that. Uh, we'll have to, we'll have to get into that on the the next round, but I'm I'm intrigued with the in the firsthand accounts that you've integrated into the book um, and where you found those amazing sources.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, happy to share. Mamie is uh, worth an entire book herself. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic, wonderful. Well, we can. Um come
0: back to uh, maybe when we get back um and looking forward to just talking more about the different sites and um your your wonderful descriptions of legislation and just all there's so much to talk about with the book and i can tell it's going to be uh one of those episodes that hopefully we don't talk too much <laughs> for you because we're just so excited about the book <laughs> uh, but yes we'll be back Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts, as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Women Archaeology podcast. Uh, we have the wonderful Rachel Morgan with us talking about her book, Sins of the Shovel, Looting, Murder, and the Evolution of American Archaeology. Uh, when we ended the last segment, we were just about to talk about the interesting, unique, practically a caricature um, Mamie Wetherill, uh, Richard, Richard Wetherill's wife, um, who went on all these adventures with him um, and helped set up shops and trading posts and everything. And um, Rachel, we'd love for you to talk about her a little bit and um, especially her role in a lot of these expeditions that she's one of the major, arche- uh, I mean, in quotes, recorders of archeology span um, and, a major part of our record keeping. Please
1: dive yeah. on in. <laughs> yeah. Mamie is uh, a really fascinating person. Um, she is little more than a teenager when she meets a uh, 30 something year old Richard. Um, and he gives her a tour of um, Chaco Canyon and some of the cliff dwellings in Mesa Verde. And um, then uh, just after that, uh, they are married and she's on the road with him uh, going to all of these amazing places on his uh, archaeological endeavors. And she does a lot of the recording uh, during their um, a- endeavors in um, uh, the Four Corners region. So, uh, you know, her records are something that uh, archaeologists are still using to kind of piece together the past. Um, So in that regard, we're lucky to have her contributions to the field. Um, And then there's this other side of Mamie. um, When you're reading her um, uh, interviews and uh, her reminiscences of the past, I think one historian called her a fantasist. Um, she <laughs> she kind of um, for it <laughs> she has these uh, this tendency to exaggerate her experiences if not make up things. Um, for instance, she says as a child she met Geronimo and they like struck up this friendship that lasted for years. Um, she, Uh, says at one point that she was kidnapped by um, some Native American people. There is not uh, any support that I found in any other written record for that. Um, In other places, she says that she uh, was, uh, you know, quotes, baptized uh, by the Navajo community as one of their own. Um, That is not support it either she has which would um, be surprising given their treatment
0: of indigenous peoples a lot of time
1: yeah i think it has far these stories have far more to do with um she her sort of um role in archaeology sort of came to an end in her 30s when her husband was murdered. And at that time, there was a lot of judgment passed um, against her. Um, And she sort of um, falls off the record at that point. And nobody really talks to her about the past until she's um, an elderly woman and people want to know about Richard's contributions to the field. Mm -hmm. And that's where these Um, sort of fantastical stories start coming up. And so, you know, it seems a bit of a reaction to, um, she has this awareness that people have said things about her that offend her, and she really wants to put herself in a different light, and she goes way over the top with it. And it makes it difficult, um, because her um, writings about the you know, quote-unquote archaeology that was going on are helpful um, details to understand what happened in the past, but her tendency to exaggerate and sort of make up things make it really difficult to um, rely on her as mm-hmm. a um, reliable witness to the past.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's totally fair, but with With her having joined them on a lot of the expeditions um, to do, I mean, I get uh, excavations in quotes um, and whatnot. I mean, it sounds like she contributed a lot, at least in terms of doing some minor cataloging and whatnot that it sounds like. May only might be the one of the only records left of some of the work that was done at like Chaco Canyon and um, oh gosh and uh, uh, Grand Gulch is that
1: correct? Yes, um, she uh, was the record keeper on several of those um, expeditions and those records are still valuable today. So she definitely contributed something to the field um, it, and. Um, those records are a testament to her time.
0: That is so cool, and I do see like, and I saw this throughout the book that you included so many unique voices that are otherwise not highlighted in a lot of art, um, archaeology textbooks, and a lot of um, of archaeological works that we only have like the major voices: Boaz and and Fuchs, Kidder, whatnot. Um, I, I really appreciated that you included a lot of early um, female archaeologists, as well as just other people. It's very similar to Weatherall, although they may have had a different attitude about their contributions, um, the Lady Associations for trying to preserve um, Mesa Verde, and that um, the preservation of Mesa Verde may have not happened with a, um, without a lot of these um, rich lady associations and um, reporters. So I really appreciate that you tried to include so many, not only indigenous voices, um, but female voices as well um, and their contributions, whether or not they were all over the place, <laughs> um, whether they were positive or negative, it's great to see those other contributions that we just don't really see in a lot of literature. and. So why was it important? I mean, like, we appreciate it. Why was it important for you to include all these different voices in the book?
1: It never really felt like a choice to me. Um, (laughs) You know, I just wanted to depict the history of this uh, evolution in a fair way. And these women contributed just as much as the men in the field. Um, They weren't given fair credit or compensation. Mm -hmm. But if it wasn't for them, we would have lost a lot of important cultural sites, and we would be missing essential records. Um, So they deserved more from the field in their lifetime. And I'm very grateful for their efforts and the records and letters that they left behind. And um, I enjoyed learning about them and um, uh, was very uh, happy to have uh, their voices in this story. That's
2: wonderful. And certainly it's something that we've noted in other Uh, in the history of archeology span is that you very often get women who are the record keepers, who are along on digs, but who are viewed as the ones who can catalog the artifacts um, and kind of keep things for posterity, right? Um, So it's really great to see them get the recognition that they deserve along with the the like non-expert, non, field personnel right but the things that happen in society around archaeology like the women's society who raise money for the uh, preservation of mesa verde um the decisions aren't always just about archaeology you know that are made there can be financial and social what's important what's not so a very rich tapestry
0: is cool And and i'm unfortunately i'm blanking on her name but one of the the early explorers that wanted to see mesa verde um and whatnot with the weatherals, and that she was just as passionate about it as anybody else but really recognized early on that the work that the weatherers were doing was essentially um cleaning out these cliff dwellings of um priceless it, it, materials and context and everything and so yeah i just i i loved that you had so many unique individuals in there. And besides uh, maybe were there any um, of the women in there that stuck out to you in particular that you were like, oh, this lady, she's cool.
1: Uh, in a way, I mean, not in the sort of like, geez, I want to be her when I grow up, but um, <laughs> there, there were some other women who uh, I was like, oh, I, I, I would love to know more about your story. I'd love a full book on you. Um, I think Virginia McClurg, Uh, was one of them. She was involved uh, with the uh, Colorado Cliff Dwelling uh, Society's efforts to, um, she was really one of the champions of trying to protect the Mesa Verde cliff dwellings. Um, Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating about uh, Virginia is she is um, a prolific uh, visitor to the cliff dwellings. She uh, goes on these lecture tours around the country, introducing people to the cliff dwellings for Often the first time um, she raises tons of money. She gets uh, Theodore Roosevelt's support for this movement. She's an incredible advocate. And then um, what she decides that she doesn't want it to be federally protected, she wants it to be state protected and she wants to be in charge of that protection. And when she doesn't get her way, um, she leaves the movement altogether and she removes a cliff dwelling and relocates it to another part of the state. Yeah.
0: And and it's It's, just the most ridiculous and you can still visit it today. It's the most ridiculous place on the planet.
1: Yes. And just that, that shift um, or, you know, that anger, whatever it was, you know, that pushed her to make this dramatic change from I'm going to help preserve to I'm going to literally remove a cliff dwelling and desecrate this uh, piece of history because I need to be in charge of something, I think that personality is absolutely fascinating.
3: But I feel like one of the things that I saw as sort of a thread through the book um, is that this preservation, because it was so reactionary and the personality is involved, like, do you think the social dynamics (laughs) involved in all of this weird goings-ons and... the women involved, in particular, like you were just describing, with the back and forth between McClure and um, the other gal, um, Lucy Peabody. Yes, um, and like, would would we have the same protections now without the pressure and the social connections that they really pushed?
1: I think that's a very fair question. I think that, um, you know, their their drama is entertaining, but what they achieved, uh, we owe them a huge debt. Um, these places uh, still stand today in large part because of their connections, because of um, their persistence. And, um, uh, you know, Manitow is um, a, an unfortunate uh, situation, but um, that uh, the Antiquities Act was passed. Uh, we owe um, uh, both the uh, men and women who are involved in that early preservation push uh, a huge thanks. Mm.
0: And you could say a great um, big push for the uh, National Historic Preservation Act was um, a lot due to uh, Lady Bird Johnson. So just like pe- women who were passionate about the past wanting to make sure something happened to preserve these places with all that. I do. I've, i found like on the flip side of some of the legislation and the attitudes of the past was that attitude with like the ethnographies and the ethnology departments that it was a reactionary to the, f- Fear that all these languages and um, when I would be lost because the attitude that indigenous peoples needed to be assimilated and therefore that's why things would be lost and so I don't know if you have any thoughts on because you brought it up a lot in the book which I think is fantastic that um, there was the flip side of all these things to preservation that there was the attitude of like well we have to preserve it because these people are going to disappear and it's like, well, well also, these, it's because of assimilation and it is because of government stealing land and all of these things.
2: It's not just that these people are going to disappear. It's that we're going to disappear them. That, yes, exactly. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah.
0: Why do you think that's a, a an important message to give your readers that, yes, we have all this these preservation laws and whatnot, but why do you think it was important to show that to the readers as well? Especially like for folks like ourselves, like we, we know about that past, but for those who may not be familiar with it.
1: Yeah, I guess to me, um, it was important that um, I made clear that these archaeologists and anthropologists, they did things that we would not do today, that we have a hard time sometimes understanding today, but this was the framework that they were operating in. They genuinely believed that people progressed uh, from savages to barbarians to civilized uh, people, and they really believed this was happening in front of them. And this, um, you know, pseudo science uh, was the context for how anthropology and archaeology developed at this time. Um, So it wasn't just, you know, this, they had these crazy ideas, or they were these, uh, you know, villainous archaeologists, they were operating under uh, some false assumptions. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I felt like it was important to provide that context so that we understood that it was, you know, it was the field that had to change and not just a few bad apples.
0: Mm -hmm. I think that's such a good point that that context makes so really it it makes it so much more enlightening on how that work was being done and why it was being done in that way. Um, Well, and also you have people that pop up that
3: end up, um, and I really appreciated the point when you'd call this out. It's like this person came into the scene and we're doing super involved in this super sketch work, but later they ended up developing these ideas which hold true today. Or at least, you know, it helped found the the idea that, like, um, I've never known exactly how to pronounce the name. Chelsea might be able to help me with the Hardlika. The uh, awesome. Yeah. Um, so Perfect. his work seemed, from your description, Rachel, when he kind of comes into the scene is like, you know, involved in the early phrenology movement and all of eugenics. um, Yeah.
2: um, He's problematic.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Um, But his work also led to the acknowledgement that like, we are all related. Like it had to go through all of these, you know, based off of where they were coming from and where the starting point was. And this isn't to justify, but it's just, one of those things like where we are now, na- where we are now and where we think we need to be doesn't come out of the blue like we're all start in the context in which we are at right And that was a really cool um, and then I think Boaz has a similar like mm-hmm. significantly like way problematic, History and discussion, but also ended up founding some ideas that ended up becoming more um, useful as the field developed. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I don't know, Rachel, if you have me. any, uh, if you had any thoughts on like how you were able to or how you wanted to integrate those ideas because you did a really great job and i was trying to wrap my brain around like just introducing these people and then putting them for the reader who's not familiar with the field like into the context in which they were operating but also their later contributions like how did that planning go as a writer i'm just it's really interesting
1: i guess for me um I, I really strive to be fair to each of the individuals that I wrote about. Um, it's easy when you're talking about dramatic or scandalous things, you know, to make people, um, you know, come out as villains or insane characters, And I didn't feel like that was fair. Um, so I uh, just tried to, um, you know, treat them as human and, you um, provide a context for the world that they operated in and, um, the ideas that were prevalent in their society at the time. Um, and, uh, if there was a balance to be had, recognize that they did contribute this or that. Um, I had, um, I, I owe a huge thanks to my peer reviewers who I, I, don't know all of their names. so I can't thank them by name. Um, but, uh, a lot of them called me out if they felt like I was being too harsh on someone or if I was giving someone too much of a pass. Um, Mm -hmm. so that was really helpful, um, for me as well. But, um, I think the, the thing for me is that all archeologists are, are human. Um, we have good days and bad days in the field. We write good and bad reports. Uh, we make good and bad calls. I think most of us are, um, unified by our our fascination with the past, our love of the past. And I think on the whole, most of us are doing our best. Um, and so I kind of looked at uh, the people in the past the same way. And I, I expect that, you know, 100 years from now, um, other researchers and writers will be looking at all of our stuff and thinking that we're crazy people. And <laughs> uh, hopefully they'll uh, show us the same fairness. Um, so that's all I tried to do is just treat them as humans and recognize where they went wrong, but that, uh, they, they did their best in other areas as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: What assumptions are we making today and what frameworks are we using today that tomorrow's archaeologists are going to look at and be like, you did what now? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Cause you know, it's going to happen, right? Because humans are human.
0: Absolutely. Exactly. on that note yes let's hope that uh future future archaeologists treat treat us all with a little empathy (laughs) and understanding Um, when we come back we're gonna talk um a little more about uh the history um with uh, indigenous peoples and the archaeology that was um done with and without them and and so on and so forth so we will be back have you ever thought I sure would love to have the Women in Archaeology logo on a shirt, magnet, hat, and sticker. Well, you can get all of that and more from the Women in Archaeology spot on Redbubble. Just search for Women Archies on Redbubble to find all of our fun designs, like our Romanesque bust wearing headphones, or groovy bubble letters spelling out Women in Archaeology. All of the proceeds help pay for our website and podcast platform subscriptions. Thank you for your support. Welcome back to the Women Archaeology Podcast. Um, in our last segment, we were talking about the unique individuals that uh, are peppered throughout the book. And uh, Rachel's wonderful writing style and how everything was just so engaging within uh, that context. Especially when we're used to so much drier uh archaeological writings. Um, On this segment, we're hoping to talk a little bit more about the um, indigenous peoples that you wrote about throughout the book. And again, thoroughly appreciate um, including so many of the voices that are otherwise typically not mentioned in a lot of archaeological writings, as well as taking a good look at the like the Navajo workers um, at Chaco Canyon who were employed to excavate and typically at a much lower rate um, and who were not always treated uh, particularly well, especially with their belief systems. Um, so if you could talk about um, the different people you wrote about in the book, the different indigenous um, peoples and why why was it so important for you to include them? I mean, obviously we're very happy you did um, just interested in you telling uh, uh, the listeners about them.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, if you literally look at the pictures from the excavations at the time, um, it is primarily um, the uh, Navajo individuals who have a shovel in their hands. Um, These, uh, the crew uh, that worked under Richard Rutherwell on behalf of the American uh, Museum of Natural History, um, they were indigenous and Um, they moved all of that dirt. They uncovered all of the artifacts. Um, Richard was really there as a sort of a supervisory uh, position, you know, dig here, don't dig there, stop, Mm -hmm. let's get that, Uh, let's take a picture. Um, George Pepper was there as um, more of a cataloging, uh, record-keeping, all very valuable, but uh, the people who moved that dirt uh where the indigenous people um, often their names were not recorded um, mm-hmm. no credit was given to them in the reports um and we still have a bit of that today um you know there's plenty of philtex who don't get their credit um uh but uh th- this um this relationship was really due to um sort of the uh, uh, racial um, dichotomy of the time mm-hmm. and um, the people who were in power in these excavations were white men. Uh, the people who were doing a lot of the labor um, were not compensated as much. They were indigenous peoples. Uh, sometimes they were um, uh, from Latin America um, and uh, they, were, uh, they received uh, a smaller compensation. They received little to no credit, um, but none of this work would have happened without them. Mm hmm. It
0: seems like a similar thread throughout archaeology, throughout the world, where we see with, like, the um, excavations of um, Toon Common's tomb, where it's, like, the workers are only now being highlighted.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, it's it's wonderful that um, we're recognizing the contributions of those people now. Um, it's uh, it's one of our uh, deep scars that uh, we didn't do it in the past, but i mm-hmm. um, glad to say that things are changing.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And I appreciate that you put throughout the book, too, that there was a lot of pushback um, of tribal members saying, we don't want you to be excavating. We don't want you to be doing this, Um, along with those who were like, well, if they're going to do it, we might as well try to be there when it's happening, that there was this, you know, kind of back and forth. Um, Is it given what we see in the history of. In the evolution of archaeology. Do you think it's surprising given the sometimes fraught relationships that we have today in archaeology with um, indigenous communities?
1: I don't know that's surprising. I mean, we still have, um, you know, situations today where indigenous peoples make their concerns um, they, uh, and, you know, their voices heard and mm-hmm. they're not listened to. Um, so, Um, I, I guess it's just not something that we've entirely grown out of yet. Um, so I guess not super surprised, but I, I guess what surprised me was that, um, I was able to find, uh, the records of, uh, their voices. Um, Mm um, and, uh, it, it is a bit shocking to see it on paper that, you know, this person told me that what I was doing goes against their belief system and I laughed at them and went back to work that is kind of shocking to see but Mm -hmm. uh not totally surprising Mm -hmm. well
0: yeah it's like for that for the time and when it's like wow (laughs) richard you were being quite a jerk but at the same time if they already had that moral superiority and complex um one of the stories that it just it, it broke my heart a little bit and just was like oh my god this is terrible where um, Weatherall put a skull or skulls on the his sleeping workmen so that when they woke up they thought they were being cursed because um, they already had uh, fears of um, a- ancestral peoples and and ghosts and whatnot um, cursing them and it's just using their beliefs against against them and it's just like wow that's that's a low, low move, witheral.
2: My, my exact
1: thought was, "What a dick." Yes. Yeah, it was less polite than you. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: It was a shocking um, account to read, um, uh, mostly because it was it was done explicitly to use someone's um, spiritual religious beliefs against them to control them. Um, in a labor situation. Um, And I guess the other thing that I found astonishing about it is that this account wasn't um, recorded by one person. It was recorded by multiple people. And uh, there were some small details that differed, but the overarching theme of this was done to um, gain control in a labor dispute uh, was Mm -hmm. consistent. Damn. Yeah. It's just,
0: it's knowing about the evolution of history. It's like it's not surprising, but it's still surprising. Just the amount of um, manipulation and treat poor treatment of indigenous peoples in the past. Which, in the context of the past, like so much was happening at the time with boarding schools, forced assimilation, um, the Trail of Tears, the just so much going on. But it's just it's like archaeology was just another part of that Mm -hmm. in many respects um with all of that so given the history of archaeology how do you think we can learn from it to create a more inclusive practice like how can we take away from this a much in a way that we can find a a, a better way forward
1: yeah um (laughs) There's so much that we can do um, better. I mean, I will say that I I think we have come a long way, Mm -hmm. uh, especially in the last few decades. I think, um, you know, going back to the regulations, the passage of the National Historic Preservation Act and the amendments to it have given um, federally recognized tribes um, a lot uh, more uh, resources to um, and sort of force um, federal agencies and archaeologists to do better in that regard. Um, So I think um, just through the Section 106 uh, process, we've made a lot of progress. It's it's not great that we had to um, be federally uh, regulated in order to get our act together, but, you know, something is better than nothing in that regard. I think um, as a discipline, we have to continue to be um, open to um, uh, sharing our information in uh, new and better ways with as many communities as we can. Uh, I think we have to listen more. I think we have to uh, take constructive criticism better and react to it um, and maybe move away from being such a reactionary field and to be, um, you know, more proactive Mm-hmm. in our um, engagement. Um, and I think one area that we really have a lot to work uh, to do in is, um, I think we need to make some big changes in our archaeology and anthropology curriculums. Mm-hmm. I mean, if if yeah. students are graduating without ever being exposed to Indigenous perspectives on historic and present-day archaeology, uh, if they graduate without an understanding of the history of TIPOs and NAGPRA or archaeology's legally mandated responsibilities to indigenous communities, then I think we're doing something really wrong. So I think, you know, we've got to listen and communicate better. But we've also got to make sure that students are robustly educated on this uh, area and uh, before they ever set foot in the trenches. Mm-hmm.
2: And also, I mean, you mentioned that the law protects um, federally recognized tribes, uh, and also the desire to be more proactive, and and certainly we can be more proactive if with the training that we that we give people. And I mean, I I knew people in the U.S. who went through archaeology, uh, got an archaeology degree, and. Really wanted to go into to archaeology and we're probably going to do CRM and yet all of their classes were on European archaeology and like I get it right I live in Europe now I did a PhD on Vikings they're great um but we need to train people in the area that they're going to be working in um mm-hmm. but also like like what do you think we can do with the tribes that don't have federal recognition you know to to again like be more proactive about um not just because the law says so, but because it's the right thing to
1: do. Yeah, I think, um, you know, in federal context, that can be a difficult um, area. Um, There are situations where federally recognized tribes will adamantly say that, you know, state recognized tribes are not uh, supposed to be part of, you know, this or that. So that can be tricky. I think there is nothing, Uh, that legally prohibits any archaeologists from um, uh, reaching out to state-recognized tribes or other indigenous communities or any descendant community um, and uh, having a proactive community engagement program with those communities um, with sharing um, what they can of uh, findings uh, and reports without violating any confidentiality. Um, It's a... It's one of those areas that um, is very tricky, uh, but uh, they should not be excluded from archaeology um, as we try to move forward as an inclusive discipline.
0: I do have to say you your description of the Native American Graves Protection Repatriation Act, um, its positives and then its drawbacks and how it works with um, different communities, the pushback of scientists, how it works with museums, the issues with that, I think just very, very well done. Cause I do think that is something that's like, oh, well we have NAGPRA. And it's like, well, it can only go so far. And I know there were the recent changes just here in, in January um, that will shake things up a bit, um, but it's just, it, it's unique that we have this legislation, and sometimes it's still not going quite far enough, and it's almost, it's because of pushback from the archaeology community, which is frustrating, um, given that it's, like, well, it, our, our, you know, indigenous groups, consultation with groups saying they don't want science, um, scientific studies done on individuals still in collections. We need to respect that. and I, I, There still seems to be quite a bit of back and forth and I appreciate you highlighting that because I do think there's some aspects of our legislation where people think, well, one and done, we're good to go, right? Yeah.
3: Well, and they even like practicing archaeologists who aren't super familiar with Nangpra, And don't work with it regularly um like is in the northwest here we don't like unlike some other areas of the us like interacting with human remains is is not something we do commonly Mm -hmm. Um, we are heavily involved in or our procedures heavily involve the tribes like from from the time of find. Um, And oftentimes, um, depending on the situation in the tribe, we never touch them, Um, which is very different in in other contexts and in other states and regions where those relationships are a bit different, but not being familiar with the fact that the way NAGPRA was written and obviously the changes that you mentioned Um, shake this part up quite a bit, is that there's a lot of institutions that are Mm -hmm. exceptions or situations to where if the remains are old enough or of a certain, you know, cultural um, category that archaeologists have placed on it, then the, um, you know, descendant community is more vague or isn't, we aren't able to pin it on a specific Group, then they don't need to be re. Um, uh, oh my goodness, what's the word?
0: Um, I mean, the whole NAGPRA extravaganza is a quite a quite a rabbit yeah. hole we can go down for sure. Exactly. So that's
3: that's its own its own thing, but yeah. That's- and
2: legislation is never going to be enough, right? Because you have, people have to want to do the right thing um yeah. because the legislation obviously is there to try and have people do the right thing but if they don't and it comes in after the fact yeah somebody gets slapped with a fine but that doesn't necessarily and can't undo the damage that was done so it, it's a tool and a, and a place to apply pressure but it can't be the only thing it can't be that We've got one and done, uh, which unfortunately some people do kind of feel, as you were saying earlier,
0: Emily. And so with all of that, and I mean, I know just for me, like the, the different takeaways from the book were just like there's we have this unique in positive and negative ways, uh, evolution of archaeology. We there's so much more we can do. There just there are so many takeaways for me, um, as an archaeologist. Rachel, what do you hope your readers both archaeologists and non-archaeologists alike, what do you hope their biggest takeaways from your book would be?
1: Yeah, um, I definitely, um, you know, there there definitely are negative and positives of uh, how archaeology has evolved over time, and I hope no reader comes away thinking that archaeology is, you know, this this terrible uh, thing that, um, you know, we should just do away with it and. Um, or anything like that. Um, what I, I hope they see is that we have grown a lot and matured as a field, and that um, we're uh, you know, working to understand the past in new and better ways uh, every day. Um, uh, there are so many hardworking, passionate archeologists out there doing really uh, incredible work. Um, and uh, I think they're making the field a better place every day. Um, I hope the readers will take away that, um, we are really, really lucky to have the historic preservation laws that protect the past Mm -hmm. today. Um, it is really, uh, made us into this field that is, um, such a different place to work in and, um, so, uh, much better at preserving the past and being more inclusive. And so I hope that, um, readers will come away with a little bit of an understanding of why we need these laws, why they're important and uh, how important it is to uh, continue to safeguard those uh, uh, regulations. Mm -hmm. Well, and
0: on an important note, where can people purchase your book so they can get
1: these takeaways? (laughs) Yeah. um, Since of the shovel is uh, it's out there. Uh, You can get it on Amazon, audible, um, Barnes and Noble it's it's out there uh Google will show you the way excellent I yes, was we'll able definitely to definitely link it. to all of it
3: yeah I was able to find it at my local uh bookshop so you know check out and support local where you can and
0: as yes, I was happy to see it was even in the library um that there's already no joke there was already a wait list of 10 people ahead of me and I was like well, I'm going to Amazon. And I was just so happy to see it's already, you know, there's the interest is there at already all these different libraries to have copies. But yes, Rachel, this it's such a fantastic book, and I I got it super easily from Amazon. Um, Kirsten said she was able to get it very easily at local bookshops, so people check it out. It is a fantastic book. It's great for archaeologists and non-archaeologists alike. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So seriously, thank you so much for coming on and talking about your book. Um, I wish we had more time because I still have a list a mile long of things I wish I could have asked you.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Thank you guys so much for uh, letting me uh, join you and thank you for all the work you guys do highlighting the role of women in archeology.
3: span Oh, well, thank you. There you go.
0: Um, If our listeners, if you are interested in checking out our other blog posts our other podcasts you can find everything at women in archaeology.com you can contact us if you want to come on the show if you have um, ideas for topics you can contact us at women in archaeology at gmail.com you can find us on tumblr you can find us on blue sky and instagram all the different social platforms except for twitter um just search for the women in archaeology and you will find us Uh, Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. And you can find us on Patreon. That helps support the website and to help us keep doing what we do. As always, co-hosts, thank you for being here. It's always a joy to talk to you. And until next time, bye. Bye. Bye.